Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ's culture and the church. Well, welcome, everybody. I am here in the studio today with my co-host, Miss Morgan McClure. What's up, guys? And Mr. Stephen Vaughn. Hey, hey, hey. And we have a guest with us today, Mr. Robert Mullen. It's great to be here with you guys. Hey, that's great. So we're so glad that you have taken the time to join us today as we're talking about what is Indigenous Missions. So we hope you'll join us for the full discussion today. Guys, it's so good to have Robert here in the studio with us today. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to it. I've listened to, to some of your work before, and it sounds like we're going to have a lively, fun discussion today. Yeah, man. I mean, we're just excited to have you with us. And we did a missions episode before uh, with one of our mission staff, uh, Brian Frady. And if you hadn't listened to that, we'd encourage you to go back and take a listen to that as we kind of talk about just what is missions as kind of a big picture. But today we're taking time to talk a little bit more um, focused, and we're talking about indigenous missions. Um, but before we do that, why don't we just take a moment here, Robert, and, and let you share with us uh, who you are and what it is you do. All right. Well, I'm Robert Mullen, and I serve with an organization called Partners International. Partners International has been doing indigenous missions work uh, all around the world uh, for the last 78 years. And so I'm thrilled to be able to go out and represent partners to churches and, and others who are interested in making a global impact. And uh, that's what I get to do every day. Which is exciting because you have quite a missions background, uh, if I understand it right. Yes. uh, So 10 years as a missions pastor, global missions pastor at Shenandoah Baptist Church over in Roanoke. And uh, and then another six years after that, a senior pastor there at the church. And so a great missions church. And so missions is kind of, I was kind of born in missions, bred in missions, and it's a part of who I am. And now I just get to do it for a living, uh, 24-7, 365 almost. Right. And you mentioned now serving with Partners International. So for folks who are kind of new to that ministry, what is Partners and what it is that they do? Yeah, great question. Partners International is a global missions organization that doesn't send missionaries. I know that sounds kind of odd, uh, but the reality is Partners has developed a model of missions over the last 78 years that works with indigenous. Now, in, in Past years, they may be called nationals or natives even, uh, but indigenous, that means people who live uh, in a particular location, that's where they are. That's home for them. And so we partner with indigenous ministries in order to help them be more effective in reaching the people in their area of the world. And so, uh, yeah, it's a different model of missions, but one that's been practiced all the way back to the very beginning with the Apostle Paul. Certainly, certainly, yeah. So, I mean, guys, when we think about talking about indigenous missions today, what do you guys think uh, people are coming to the podcast discussion with kind of an understanding of? Well, hopefully they are coming to an un- with an understanding that it is with um, native people, people of their own country. And if you didn't know that, Hopefully you know that now. Um, but I wonder, too, how many of our listeners are comfortable with that model and how many aren't. I think that that's an interesting uh, question for you listeners who are listening right now. How, how familiar or comfortable are you with the idea of native Christians ministering, planting churches, and then pastoring those churches and leading those churches as natives without the American gospel and American influence that so often we like to impose 
um, in missions. So I think that that's a good question that I would turn back around uh, on our listeners. Yeah, that's good. I think um, it comes to that familiarity aspect, Stephen, that you brought up, because um, up until a few years ago, I really wasn't that familiar with indigenous missions or sometimes you hear church planting movements because it's just kind of outside of what we're used to as the American church um, understanding that the gospel can and does spread and churches grow outside of Americans going and planting those churches. So um, it's it's really interesting, and I think it's so exciting for our listeners to learn and hear more about that today. Yeah, and so I'm I'm kind of thinking just on the outset, Robert. Why do you feel like that is? I mean, why do you, why do you feel like indigenous missions? is maybe something that people are less familiar with, even though, like you mentioned, I mean, biblically, all the way back to the Apostle Paul, I mean, it's right there in Scripture, yet maybe we don't think through it as much like that. You know, I think there are a couple reasons. One, uh, Morgan touched on, is just familiarity. You go to the average church, when you talk about missions, it's our missionaries that we send. And by the Mm -hmm. way, at Partners International, we're all in favor of that. Uh, We're a both-and group. We believe that we should be sending missionaries and also working with indigenous ministry partners. So first of all, just familiarity. Secondly, though, I would add um, maybe just a little bit of pride um, Mm. that, you know, we think in our Western culture, uh, it's very common for us to think we really know what we're doing and how to do it. And we have all these models that we construct and ways to do church and ways to plant churches and, and ways to disciple And uh, many times we're not open to the idea that God gifts other people and other cultures and other ways, and he is now enabling and empowering them to reach their own. Mm -hmm. So it it does require a sense of openness and and honestly, a sense of humility as we approach this Mm -hmm. to think that, you know, there's somebody with brown skin with an unusual accent that eats very strange food. And the Holy Spirit dwells in that person just as much, has just as much power, just as much power in their gospel as in ours. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because I I would completely agree with you. I think people have become so comfortable with the way that we do missions, however you define we. Uh, So maybe you go to a certain type of denominational church or uh, you grew up in a certain background. And however we do missions, that's the way that we're comfortable with. And I think you I think you nailed it, Robert. I think it's hard sometimes for us to understand God can work just as much through them. And a lot of times he can work through them even more than he could if I were to go to their culture because they are there. They know the culture. They know the people. They know the food, the the strange food <laughs> that will make me sick as a, a white foreigner who has never been to their culture, right? And so I think sometimes we discount that. I think you're exactly right. I think sometimes it's pride and comfortability. I mean, even hearing you say that, I think about James chapter two, where James talks about fulfilling the royal law of scripture, loving your neighbor as yourself. And yet, even in that, talking about partiality, which I guess hearing you describe that with missions makes me feel like, in a sense, there's kind of been this partiality with how even maybe we've gone about world missions in countries that maybe we're more familiar with or we feel like are more technologically advanced or, I mean, what would you think? No, say I, that? you're exactly right. In fact, I'll tell you about our organization, Partners at International. It was born out of a spirit of humility. It was back there in the 1940s, about 78 years ago when uh, missionaries, their traditional sent missionaries from the West were being kicked out of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were either being kicked out by the government or they're being forced out by the Japanese, but the, 
all the missionaries basically had to leave China. And so there was this what some have called an aha moment. I think it was much more of an oh me moment. Right. (laughs) (laughs) When the missionaries who had been there for decades are now out of the out of China and they looked in, they said, Oh me. We were doing the work of ministry instead of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Mm. Very paternalistic, colonialistic. At the same time, praise the Lord for the missionaries who went. They were doing the best they could. They were doing what they thought they should be doing and doing it in, in a remarkable way in many situations. So as a consequence of that turnabout, there were several pastors and former missionaries who got together and said, hey, you know what? We need to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry Mm. in China. Now, fast forward 78 years, and certainly it was not just Partners International that was doing this. There were multiple organizations that were forced to utilize this model in China. But as they did, they got it. They began to do the work of the ministry. Now today, missionaries are back in China to some degree. They have a different role. Most frontline evangelism is being done by the Chinese themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the missions work is done in the form of church planting training and and that sort of thing. But look at the size of the church in China today. Some say as many as 100 million indigenous, natives, nationals, whatever you want to call them. Uh, because in many respects, the missionaries were forced out of the way, and God empowered the nationals to do the work of the ministry. And it's been a phenomenal testimony to the model. Again, it's not the only way to do it, sure, but it is a model that is very effective and impactful. Yeah, and so I think we'll talk about that model here in just a moment and maybe break it down a little bit more. But I think before we do that, I think we probably shouldn't um, jump over what people do or do not assume. And as we think about missions in particular, uh, what is missions? I mean, we've been talking about the missionary and thinking about indigenous mission works. But if we had to just very simply define what is missions, how would you answer that? Morgan? Well, I mean, I think very simple, basic terms, missions is taking the gospel to places where it is not known and where it is not um, being told among others. And um, missions is also the goal is to plant churches that can grow and can make more disciples and make more churches. That's good. What would you add to that, Stephen? Yeah, I would simply say missions is when humans are about God's mission. Ooh, um, I like it's that. taking God's mission. And that's not original, by the way. Oh. That's actually from a missions book that's sitting on my shelf to, right now in my studio. I was about to give you like studio. major cred for that. Um, you should have just taken it. <laughs> however, however, I do believe that it is true that missions is when I'm about God's mission. Sure. And it's uh, in a in a crux. It's Matthew twenty eight eighteen through mm-hmm. twenty. It's making disciples of all nations and uh, teaching them and baptizing them. And um, I, I believe that that when you boil it down, that's what missions is. If you could just boil it down into a couple of sentences, Robert, how would you add to that? Yeah, let me take it and narrow it down even further and give you the formal missiological definition. Let's if I go. could sound, if I could sound intellectual <laughs> just for a brief moment, uh, missions is crossing global missions is crossing cultural, geographical, or linguistic barriers in order to share the gospel, or as I like to desert, say, to declare the glory of God among the nations of the earth. Right. There is there some confusion today. Stephen referenced the term mission or missional. Mm-hmm. And that's a great term, by the way. God was on a mission. God's been on a mission from the very beginning. Um, but 
if you don't narrow down what we're talking about here today, it that term can become confusing. And the missional movement, as many good things that has has accomplished today, right? It's kind of muddied the water. <laughs> yeah, it's inadvertently created some confusion because some may say, "Well, you know, we work at the rescue mission mm-hmm. downtown, or we're on mission with the Blue Ridge Women's Center, helping um, women make good choices with regard to pregnancy, or we're on mission in our church, and mission." can become what I'm doing right here with people that look like me, talk like me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really important, we believe, to to clarify that what we're talking about here in a missiological perspective is crossing the geographical, linguistic, or cultural barriers to share the gospel. That's traditional missions uh, from a missiological that's perspective. That's good. No, that's good because I think when we go to the scripture, what we see at the heart of the gospel is that God's heart is for all nations. I mean, you even see that there in the Old Testament, the verse you reference of declaring God's glory among the nations. And then in the New Testament where you were at, Stephen, of what we refer to as the Great Commission passage, uh, you see Jesus telling them to go into all the world. Right, So there is this global aspect. When we're thinking about missions today, we're thinking about globally in the sense of how, how are we crossing those geographical and cultural and linguistic barriers. And in order to do that, we think about terrifically, uh, significantly, the great need for the gospel today. Uh, I, I think this has been something that over the last few weeks I've been spending some time on just thinking about um, people groups and, and different places. And you can go on many different places online and, and look up things about unreached people groups. But if we just had to think about today, uh, the statistic is that there's over 7.7 billion people living on planet earth. And they tell us within 30 years from now, uh, by the year 2050, that number is supposed to be over 9.7 is what is projected. And so if we think about that, then, um, you know, the world's population as a whole, 3.2 billion are considered unreached, meaning, meaning they have little or no exposure to the gospel. Would that be correct in saying that? Yes. Robert? Again, from a technical perspective, uh, a group, a people group is considered unreached when less than 2% of the population are, would be considered evangelical believers. Uh, thus of a size of an ability to be able to reach that own particular people group. Or if they add if 5% or would be considered nominal Christian, um, if less than 5%, then they would be considered unreached. Unreached doesn't mean there are absolutely no believers within that group, but there just aren't enough believers mm-hmm. in order to actually be effective in reaching that group, meaning they need help in some way to be able to do that. And then thinking about that, though, globally, I mean, when you crunch the numbers, that's over a third of the world's population falls into that category of being unreached. And I think specifically where you're at with partners focuses within the 1040 window, which that may be a new term uh, for some of our listeners. What is the 1040 window? Yeah, 1040 window is an area of the world, 10 degrees north latitude, 40 by 40 degrees north latitude, stretching from Africa across to Asia. Um, it's the area of the world where the spiritual need is the greatest. It's an area of the world where physical need is the greatest, where there's uh, enormous poverty. Um, and so it's an area of the world that Partners has chose to target. Um, and we call it the, either the unreached or the least reached, least resourced areas of the world, uh, where, you know, if you're aiming 
where the need is the greatest, you're going to look at that block called the 1040 window. And I think the natural question that people would ask when they hear that is then why? Why why is the 1040 window in particular where the greatest needs represented? You know, some of that may have to do with the simple the poverty and the things that uh, make it difficult for people just to live life. But the majority of people that live in that 1040 window are either Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist. And so there is very great resistance just from those religions themselves. But then the governments within that region also tend to support either Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. And so the the deck is stacked against the Christians uh, in, in that regard. So it's just an area of the world where it's traditionally the gospel did not penetrate. Um, and in places where it did, Islam pushed back mm-hmm. uh, militarily, pushed the Christians out. Either, you know, they gave them choice in their religion. They had choice to choice to choose Islam or choice to die in many cases. And that's mm. many hundreds of years ago, but we still see some of that same um, some of that same oppression uh, that believers in that area of the world are facing today. So, what else would you guys add to that as we think about this kind of the tremendous need for the gospel today uh, in these unreached places, and you know sometimes the limited access that I can't kind of hear you say um, in those areas. Um, anything you guys would want to add to that point? Yeah, well, I, I picked up what you mentioned a while back, that Partners has been around for 78 years. Is that right? Yes. So, um, I mean, starting out, what have you noticed or um, and like has Partners addressed that as this world's population is growing? Um, how has this need in the 1040 widow changed over that extensive period of time? That's a that's a great question, Morgan. Um, the the the, to- the term uh, 1040 window was coined in the uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, actually by the president of Partners International, a guy named Louis Bush. So we like to uh, uh, lay claim to that uh, term <laughs> as 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 we having invented it. But really, what it is, it just signifies. It's a way to understand the area of the world where where the need is greatest. And unfortunately, uh, Morgan that need has continued to be the greatest in that place. And, and there's some reasons for that. We touched on it, the the pushback from religions, which tend to be militant, you know, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Um, the fact that it's just easier to go other places, uh, you know, missionaries are still needed in South America and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, but those places tend to be easier to go, places mm-hmm. to go and places to have success. Uh, the reality mm-hmm. is, even though the greatest need, 3.2 billion people are in this area called the 1040 window, only 3% of sent missionaries actually go to this area Which of is the just world. staggering wow. to think about that, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that the, the other 97% are going to the reach. And praise the Lord, the, the others, they need the gospel there too. Um, but it, it, sad, even sadder than that, um, only one penny – Actually, less than one penny out of every dollar given towards missions actually goes to reach the unreached mm-hmm. in that region of the world. So that's one of the missions of Partners International is to highlight this area of the world where the need is greatest and then to say, you know what, it, it may be hard for a missionary to go and to stay and, and to be successful, 
But we have people that are believers that are already there, and let's just come alongside them and help them out to accomplish what the vision that God has already given to them. It's not it's not checkbook policy. It's not write a check and you know wipe your hands and be done with missions. Mm-hmm. We actually are partners international, and we say come along and become partners with your brothers, your sisters in these hardest places on the planet and see what the two of you can do together will be much greater than the two of you could do separately. That's good. That's good. Yeah, no, I think that that's fantastic. So as we're continuing along here, we already touched on indigenous missions a little bit at the front end, but can we take a little bit more time now, I think, to dive into that in a deeper way and um, really discuss maybe some of the differences between what we've defined as cross-cultural missions and indigenous missions. And before we do that, could you give us, um, I think you gave it to us at the very beginning, but could you re-give us a definition of indigenous missions? Yeah, so let's distinguish between uh, cross-cultural missions and indigenous. Cross-cultural missions is, as we said, it's crossing geographical borders or um, cultural borders or linguistic barriers. So it's the traditional missionary that goes from here to South America or to Africa or to Asia or someplace like that where they have to learn a language. They have to understand how to function within a culture. They need to figure out how to digest the food. Uh, They more likely than not will need a visa. Mm. And so they have these challenges. Which is a big challenge. One of our mission staff here, I know it took them every bit of a year and a half where they were just waiting for the visa process to be greenlit for them. And that's even, we. I mean, we talk about the 1040 window, a visa in a 1040 window access country. I mean, that can be a nightmare for an American or a Western citizen. Yeah, I mean, they're often referred to as restricted access countries. Mm -hmm. And that's for a reason, because missionaries are not welcome you, you know, you can go to certain places in Africa and you go on a missionary visa. Uh, if you walk, try to walk into some of these places and say, I'm here as a missionary, uh, not only will you not get in, uh, but you, you'll be run right out of the run right out of the embassy there. So yeah, you'll be on a plane going home very quickly. <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> so very as we quickly. kind of think about that, though, for here a second, like the differences between that cross cultural approach and the indigenous approach. Um, you know, you reference the Apostle Paul. I think he's one that kind of crossed both of those because indigenously he did that to Jewish people as a Jew, but then he also did cross cultural barriers in the sense of going to Gentile places. And, um, you know, so we can think back. And I think you, you were well in saying that that probably what people are most familiar with, I would think, in the United States would be kind of the cross cultural approach of of world missions where somebody is crossing those nationalistic barriers or those people group barriers. And, you know, we think about missionaries and um, that have really, you know, gone before us. I think about people like Hudson Taylor uh, or William Carey. I mean, some of those names that people probably would recognize as a missionary, well, they, they were involved in cross-cultural missions. But I think what we're probably less familiar with is the indigenous mission work, which is not sending a missionary to another country, but it's working with nationals, natives within a country who are already reaching their people group, which as I thought about all that this week, it made me ask a question. Is it appropriate to refer to them then as indigenous missions or is not all church work in a sense indigenous? Yeah, that's a a great point. It's a debate that missiologists like to, I didn't to mean sit to get around and discuss it. No, no, it's a great, it's a great discussion. 
So um, we typically call the people that we're working with, we typically don't call them missionaries um, in, in, the, in the strictest sense, unless they are crossing a cultural, geographical, or linguistic barrier, they would be ministry workers. Gotcha. Uh, now, there's some places, take India, for example, 6,700 different people groups or some astronomical number like that. You know, um, there may be a church, there may be a church planting organization that this church planter is going to, and they're reaching into this particular area, and that would not be considered cross-cultural missions because it's in the same culture. But they may go 10 miles down the road, and all of a sudden, it's a completely different language, completely different people group. Uh, everything's different, and in that sense, it would be it would be cross-cultural. It would be, you know, missiologically speaking, it would be missions. All right, we don't want to get hung up on the on the terminology itself, but. The idea is that the people that are close in geography, close in culture, close in language are going, in many cases, to be better equipped to reach those people because they don't have to learn the language, the culture, mm-hmm. and, and all that. Yeah, and I like what you I like you using India as an example because that's like the perfect example because you spent some time many, there, didn't you? I did, and many of their cultures, while they're very different, they have threads that run throughout, right? And even in their languages, they might not speak the exact same dialect, but they can understand. And so you're right; it's it isn't necessarily cross cultural, but it's not necessarily a ministry worker. It's like in that weird middle ground in certain countries like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's think about this then. So, as we're thinking about the indigenous work today, what what are and let's kind of work through this and talk through it because once again, this is probably a newer concept to some people. And uh, to think through, what are the advantages of taking that type of missions approach, um, working with the indigenous church in that way? You know, we, we've already touched on a number of those. So, t- to begin with, uh, someone who is indigenous is grew up speaking the language. They don't have to go to language school for two years to learn French, perhaps, and then learn the local dialect, and then there may be five or six local dialects. Um, They grew up speaking the language from the very beginning. Which is a big deal. I mean, I, I know one of our mission staff here at our church, they went for three years of language school or two years of language school. I can't remember which it was. And, you know, he was kind of challenging us. He was like, you know, it's not that I just have to go live in the country and be able to get by, but I have to be able to teach these people in their own language, which totally raises the stakes, you know, another level. I mean, it's it's not that you're just familiar enough with the language to where you can get through things, but you're now having to teach theological concepts and truth to people, having mastered that language in a sense. Yeah, and and, it, and I was 10 years as a missions pastor, so you know I was working with our missionaries all the time on these very issues. And it's not just that you can get by in the language, but the, that you can communicate in the heart language mm-hmm. of the individual mm-hmm. with whom you're talking deep spiritual truths. This is, this is what we're talking about. Imagine for a moment flip the script imagine someone came from china to catawba bought a house and began going door to door and they were just learning english how effective do you think they would be not very <laughs> no <laughs> at all <laughs> no uh and so the, the it now flip the script back someone from right. the u.s goes to a place 
where there's a different language and they're, you know, they're trying to get through it. They're trying to communicate deep truths. Uh, you know, it's not – they, first they want to learn how to order coffee, okay, <laughs> you know, the staff of life, okay. But then after that, they want, to, they want to be able to speak about the atonement. They want to be able to speak about these deep theological matters and, and help someone come to saving knowledge of Jesus uh, and it's just it's hard to get mm-hmm. to the point where you're effective in doing that. In yeah. many ways, it's not just learning vocabulary. Language is is something that, and I love the term heart language because uh, languages across the world are set up so differently. In the way we understand time and emotion and how we express that, language goes so much deeper than just knowing the right word to say, but how to say it that's going to make the most felt sense to people mm. it's very challenging for a non-native speaker mm-hmm. felt sense and also so that you're not miscommunicating something or offending someone oh, in the yeah. way that you say it and i mean that's a that's a huge deal in cross-cultural missions is just as much learning the language and even the heart language but also the uh the etiquette of how do i say it should i address a woman or is that going to completely going to ruin my open door? Because in certain cultures, if I as a man were to address a woman, Morgan, uh, I'm pointing at you. If you're not, <laughs> nobody's in the studio with me, so yes. they can't see me. But <laughs> in some cultures, that would be that would ruin my chance of ever sharing the gospel. You know, and uh, there's so much there to that of learning the language and the cultural etiquette behind it. Which, and sometimes I know the missionaries that I've known who've gone cross culturally overseas. Almost every one of them have those stories. You know, whether oh, yeah. whether whether or not they were. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something that's made light of in the moment, but in other senses, like it could be more s- serious, like uh, thinking about, you know, taking the time to learn the language and the time that the time factor that goes into that, you know, because so many missionaries that go cross culturally, which is a great thing, but most of them spend their first term on the field, really learning the culture and the language and just becoming a part of that community. Yeah. And let me, let me give some context to this, too. I don't think any of us are saying that missionaries should not go cross-cultural, learn the language, share the gospel. We're all in favor of that. What we're saying here today is that the indigenous person has an advantage. Sure, sure. They're starting out a little bit ahead. They're starting out way ahead. Uh, The score is in their favor. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. It's not an either-or, and you said that earlier. It's it's not an either-or. Both and. It's a both Mm -hmm. and. Because, Because God does call people. Uh, to cross cultural barriers. I mean, and you can go back and you can read some of those biographies and we all have of Mm -hmm. missionaries who have given their life and God called them in very specific ways and tremendous impact that came, you know, through their life and the way that God used them. But I think if we're honest, probably indigenous missions, would you say Robert has been neglected from the church in America by and large? Yeah, I I would say so. Um, It's, the, the predominant model, uh, especially in the U.S., has been uh, to train up missionaries and send them out. And praise God. H- here's the point. There would be no indigenous believers if the first missionaries had not gone. Mm-hmm. Aaron, you pointed out correctly, the Apostle Paul kind of was, was kind of doing both, okay? But he eventually, he went cross-culture. Yeah. You know, he started on his missionary journeys. That's where the indigenous believers came from. I like to say that Paul's epistles that he wrote to all these churches, they were letters to indigenous ministry partners. Hmm. They hmm. were saying we, and he says it in Philippians, we were partner, we we're partners in the gospel. 
and he's trying to help them. He's doing what Partners International seeks to do, and that is to come along beside and supply what may be lacking. Sometimes what's lacking for them to be even more effective in their ministry might be theological knowledge. It may be some particular skill. Right. It may be the need for prayer support and encouragement. Almost always there are financial challenges facing believers in these particular contexts and cultures where they want to give all of their life, all of their time, effort, and energy mm-hmm. to reaching the people around them. And so we're able to come alongside and, and provide the financial support like we provide for a sent missionary. So if you if you look back from the beginning, this has been the model that was practiced by the Apostle Paul. Right. It continued on. We referenced Hudson Taylor earlier. The thing, the two things that marked Hudson Taylor, well, there are a lot of things that marked Hudson Taylor. <laughs> One of my great heroes. I mean, it's faith, and okay. But the two things, particularly in the context of this discussion, number one is he went indigenous. He took on the culture. He took on the dress. He took on the native culture because he knew those, those things about his Western background were barriers. Huh. The second thing is Taylor equipped and trained the natives, the nationals, mm. and that was a big part of China Inland Mission. What happened after that was a lot of missionaries forgot that principle that Hudson Taylor had had tried to ingrain and were doing the work of the ministry themselves right. instead of equipping. It requires a constant humility on our part uh, when we approach these relationships. We are not the Western saviors of the world. Mm-hmm. Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> yeah, say it again for us. I mean, I think sometimes yeah. I think so. Sometimes we we I think it's just human nature to think that your nationality or your uh, background or your education is kind of the end all be all. What whatever that was, even if it wasn't that much, but to you, it's so significant. And we have a tendency to disparage and look down on people. I mean, it's what James talking about in the royal law. I mean, there's that whole, it's just human nature to look at other people that are different than us. And because they're different than us, we say whatever, well, they're less advanced or they're less educated or they're less whatever. And, and, and that's completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would completely agree with you. We can't, we, we are not called to change cultures. We are called to share the gospel so Christ can change hearts. And uh, Robert, I love that you brought up some of the financial pieces of how you all have helped support indigenous missions. But I do have a question. Is there a financial advantage for an indigenous worker versus a cross-cultural missionary? And if there is or if there isn't, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that, that's another reason, Stephen. Um, it is just more efficient. Um, you know, as a, as a missions pastor for 10 years, uh, I went through the budgets of missionaries time after time after time, and we're always trying to, to provide for the missionary and at the same time be as efficient as possible. And the simple fact of the matter is, when we send a missionary to the field, we want them to live within their culture. We don't want them to live them above the culture, but it just costs so much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, then someone who is living in their own context and culture doesn't need two years of language school, doesn't need years of deputation to raise the funds, doesn't need um, you know special visas, and doesn't need to fly back home when they get sick. Mm-hmm. And, and all those things are valid for missionaries. Uh, I'm not being critical at all. 
No, because um, most of the missionaries overseas, if you look at them, they're not living extravagant lifestyles. Not so. at all. No. Yeah, they, they, they would be very much, I mean, below what many people in the U.S. would even say, well, that's 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 good. You mm-hmm. know, so as you think about that, but even the reality of taking taking a missionary, I know for those that are on our mission staff, most of them are somewhere between five and $7,000 a month, typically, depending on where they're at. Some of them are over eight. We mm-hmm. had their ministry cost involved in that. So you think about the money that is that is um, going behind them, uh, helping them get to the field. But what would be kind of in a, every country is different. But as we think about these indigenous workers, what would kind of be the financial comparison as we kind of think about, you know, five, six, seven thousand. Would that be a rough uh, an accurate episode? You'd probably have a better number than I would. That that would be a reasonable number for your typical sent missionary, five, six, seven thousand dollars a year. Um, per, per month. Oh, excuse me, month. per month. Yeah, per um, year would be great. I was yeah. say per year, man, there, well, getting by. <laughs> so that's, we're getting closer to what it would be for someone mm, in, right. indigenous. Yeah. And, and that's not, you can't, you can't uh, extrapolate across the board mm-hmm. for everyone. Different locations are going to have different standards of living, different cost of living. Um, but it, it does tend to be, I, I would say, maybe 10 to 1. Um, yeah, uh, in terms of cost, definitely in the more needy nations as well. Like it could even be a little bit more than ten to one, probably in some of those nations. Yes. Yeah. So well, let go ahead. What are you going to say? Well, and if another financial aspect I could bring up, if I may, um, sometimes with this cross-cultural missions model that we've uh, we in America are most familiar with, it can have the tendency to create financial dependency on the target cultures that we go to. And, and in some ways, I, the way that I uh, see and as you've been speaking, it seems like indigenous missions would mitigate a lot of that, you know, looking to the Americans or looking back to the other country for money because people are just doing it as they do their regular life. Yes and no. Okay. The, the yes is definitely the dependency is a concern. So, um, and for people who don't even know what dependency is, maybe give us a little explanation yeah, I'll, there. I'll give, you, I'll give you one example. So at Partners International, we typically do not support pastors who are ministering in their own culture. Now you say, wait a second, that seems to be the core. But the reason we don't is because we believe if we step in and support a pastor, then the church itself will not step up mm-hmm. and support that. And so it creates a dependency. I mean, the stories are legion. There, you know, I'll tell you one in particular. There's a story of a church, you know, and 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 a church in the U.S. goes to a particular place in Africa, and they build this church building for the church. I mean, they they provide all the resources, all of the funds, all the materials, and then the workers come and they build the church. And a few years later, there's a a leak in the roof of the church, and so they get an email from the church is saying. Hey, the roof on your church building is leaking, mm-hmm. and and we think, wow, you know, don't you get that? But they were so used to being provided everything mm-hmm. that they weren't taught that they needed to embrace the ownership of that and to give. And so, yeah, this issue of dependency is a, is a really really important one. I'm glad you brought it up, Morgan. That's where I'll brag about partners a little bit. Partners has learned a lot of those lessons. And that's why I would encourage any church, any individual that is going to work in one of these relationships to involve a seasoned, skilled, knowledgeable partner to help them navigate the complexities of cross-cultural relationships involving money. Mm-hmm. People have different understandings, different cultures. Here, here's just one example. 
there in in India in some cultures particularly in India if an individual in the group is giving a large sum of money it is culturally expected within the family that that it, he's going to share that money with everyone in the family that's a cultural expectation so if this person happens to be a pastor and and a you know relatively rich person church pastor someone from the US comes and says boy you really need help okay let us we're going to give you these thousands of dollars and for us you know that's not a big gift at all but for that person that's the biggest amount of money they've ever seen huh. all of a sudden they're in this whoa you, we put them in a different position culturally i'm expected to share this with my family huh. and so all i'm saying is there are real complexities in this area of cross-cultural ministry relationships and the issues of dependency and that's where skilled knowledgeable people that have been doing this for years are able to help you navigate those complexities so that you don't create a dependency that is unhealthy which it's, it's a whole thing yeah, you know you right. instead of teaching someone uh, instead of giving them a fish you teach them how to fish mm-hmm. okay instead of giving someone just doling out money just because every time they ask for it, you just keep doling it out. You teach them how to handle it, and you teach them what expectations are with regard to that. That's good. That's yeah. good. And uh, could you give us just a few really practical examples of how Partners has you know, enabled indigenous missions to be more sustainable? Like what kind of things do you promote among your ministry partners to you know, mitigate and avoid that dependency? Well, first of all, it, it goes at partners in particular, how we select our ministry partners. There are thousands and thousands of missions organizations, um, indigenous ministries out there that are very worthwhile. We have a very extensive vetting process to ensure that the, the ministry organizations that we're partnering with have a healthy um, existence apart from our financial support uh, we, where they were self-sustaining before you got there. We want to make sure that, and they remain that. You know, mm-hmm. the old principle, self-sustaining, self-supporting, self-propagating. Um, we want to make sure all of those things are already happening. So we're choosing ministry organizations that are already healthy. They're already making an impact to say, hey, you can go much further if we can just be that catalytic agent to help you take that next step that you've not been able to get across that hurdle, we come alongside and and help them do that. Which, this has been great. So I think as we think about it now on the podcast, let's kind of just end by kind of shifting our attention now to thinking about uh, individuals who are listening today. Because I think as, as we hear this and we think about, you know, different models, really, there's this cross-cultural model that many have probably been most familiar with. But thinking about indigenous mission works and just the great advantages that are there, and then also being reminded of those statistics that, you know, where, you know, four-fifths of, of the world's population and the greatest need is in these unreached places. And then the statistic you gave of less than one cent, right, of every dollar goes to these indigenous works. I think the question that we want to end with today is, is every person kind of thinking through this for themselves, what steps can the global church take towards building the church in the least reached places? So what are some of those real practical takeaways that people can leave from this to think about how can they engage in seeing that unreached number uh, come down? Hmm. Great question. I'm going to go back to 
where we started in, in terms of understanding perhaps why we don't do indigenous missions, why we haven't done it in the past, first is come with a sense of humility, uh, of understanding there are brothers and sisters in Christ in this world that are living under the threat of persecution, under the threat even of martyrdom, whose churches are being torn down, shot up. I uh, was just reading before I came here a report from one of our ministry partners in a country that ends with S-T-A-N. <laughs> those are not easy countries. Mm-hmm. None of those countries are easy places to minister. And they were talking about the Easter celebration that we're having at the church. And the country, the, the authorities in the country actually not wanting to have a massacre on their hands on Easter Sunday, actually had to post snipers all around this church building Man. to keep the worshipers, the Christian worshipers, from being attacked. Wow. So there are places in the world like that. And to understand that they are there and they are trying to reach their own people, um, I think should evoke in us, First, a sense of humility, um, then a sense of, of compassion. The, the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts to say, you know what? We want to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to help them. They are, they're doing the best they can, and there may be things they're lacking that we can supply in order to, to make their task easier. I, I would also add this. Um, those who work with indigenous ministry partners will get back just as much as they give. I had a pastor from the Chicago area not too long ago talking to one of our indigenous ministry partners who's working, doing church planting among in 14 Arabic-speaking countries. I mean, these are the hardest places on the planet. And this pastor says to the leader of this church planting network, he said, we need you way more than you need us. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you need? What do you mean? He's like, you know, finances, prayer, encouragement. He says, no, we need your example. Right. We need your testimony. We need your humility. We need your willingness. to. We need to see that because we don't observe that in our culture, in, in the Western church today. And we need to learn from you mm-hmm. as much as you need to benefit from the small ways we can help you. And I fully echo that because I feel like as a pastor, when I've had the opportunity a couple years ago, I was over in Africa in Uganda and I had the chance one day to spend an entire day with a national and, you know, he spoke English, but that was his life and uh, spent time at a coffee house and then going to see his family and his home and his church. And I came away and I came back to the States with this understanding of Man, it's great that our church gets this opportunity to go, you know, impact places on mission trips and do those type of things. But it was far more influential, I feel like, for me being there with him and getting him even to think about what he what he could share in the States, you know, because I feel like many of those indigenous workers could probably run circles around pastors in America in terms of their commitment, in terms of their dedication. And then yet there's other things though, that's like a partnership where maybe in the United States, we've been very blessed with resources and education and things that have not been as well accessed in other places around the world. And so it really is a true partnership uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And 
Uh, but I would just echo that because I, I feel that way. I don't know. What about you, Stephen? I know you've had almost to... definitely. I would completely agree. I think I love what you've been saying throughout the whole thing. It's both and. And um, yes, there are people who are called to go in cross-cultural missions. And a lot, though, are not. A lot are called to be ministry workers in their own culture. And I think it's important. Um, the whole theme has been about humility. And I think I would just echo that of what can you, listener, including myself, what can we learn from our brothers and sisters all across the world? And we're often trying to learn from that preacher or that seminary or that book. And maybe it would be good for us to see what we can learn from one of our dear brothers and sisters on the backside of the desert in a country in Africa. Or maybe it would be good for us to learn from a brother and sister in one of the STAN countries, you know. <laughs> um, maybe it would be good for us to figure out how we could form a personal partnership. And I love that that's what you all do at Partners is you seek to form that close personal partnership between Christians on each uh, either side of the world to focus on how can I help you reach your culture and how can you help me reach my culture? Right. Mm. So right. let me go ahead. You were going to say something. Well, I, you, you asked me to make it practical. And so right. let, me, let me make it really practical. I, I, I have um, four things I really accent. And, and, and by the way, if you come to Catawba Valley Baptist Church this Sunday, you'll hear all four of these explained in much more detail. <laughs> uh, but, but the, the number one thing uh, in order to be involved in missions is knowing. Mm. You, you have to know about it. So let me just give a plug for partners. Go to partnersintl.org and check it out. Read the stories there about indigenous ministry partners that are really sacrificing and serving to reach their own people. Come to Catawba Valley and uh, Baptist here and and find out more. Talk to Pastor Aaron, Pastor Steve, and talk to talk, talk to Morgan. And, and, and learn about the stories of these ministry servants on the front lines doing incredible things. The second would be praying. You know, get your heart tied with someone across the other side of the world. Um, there's a book, one of my favorite books, uh, Stephen's father introduced it to me by a guy named Wesley Duell called Touch the World Through Prayer. Hmm. You can touch the world through your prayers, sitting in your living room, in your prayer closet, on your boat while you're fishing, wherever you may be, you can touch the world by touching the heart of God in prayer. So know about it, pray about it, give. Come to Catawba Valley uh, this Sunday, and you'll learn how you can participate <laughs> in that, okay? Or Same tune in via part. our live stream there you if go. you yeah. are yeah. listening yeah. all over the Sunday, world. Because we have listeners all over live the world. Stream on Sunday yeah. morning. So you can join us on our Facebook page. That's Catawba Valley Baptist Church-VA. Yeah, and then the last thing is go. Go visit them. See what's going on. You'll be astonished and amazed how God saves souls in a church that meets under a big old Joshua tree mm-hmm. on the outskirts of the desert. How God is at work in ways that don't look familiar to us, that may even make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but the Holy Spirit is, is changing hearts and lives in a phenomenal way. That's true. That's true. Well, let me ask you guys this then, as we kind of take away from this today, anything else that you want to add or any thoughts that you have on this whole topic of indigenous missions? Well, I just want to thank you for those excellent steps. I love it when people can just break it down into something super practical and help help us, help our listeners. And, and just, you know, from a personal perspective that 
that prayer and just knowing about um, what God is doing elsewhere in the world, I think is so important. And um, whether it's through partners and reading through some of those stories, honestly, I think stories are the way that we connect the most with our brothers and sisters around the world because we can read statistic after statistic and people are just nameless and faceless in, in light of these big, big numbers. But when you read about a family who's whose father is in prison because he was sharing the gospel and now the church is having to take care of this family. But it's their joy and it's their privilege to continue in that work. Or um, like you said, the, the the church in one of those stand countries who is under such intense persecution or, or threat of danger around every turn, and yet they joyfully gather to to praise the Lord and, and to continue in His work. It's just something incredible. So that's that's what I would always plug for people. Do your reading and then start praying for people mm. and by name if you can in any story that you read. Yeah, and I would just close by just asking everyone, including myself, uh, what does it look like for you to be involved uh, in both cross-cultural missions and indigenous mission work. Um, as, as we've kind of gone through this episode, hopefully you've gotten the point that you, wherever you are, if you are a saved, born-again believer of Jesus Christ, you are an indigenous ministry worker. <laughs> so hopefully you've picked up on that. Um, but more so, how can you partner with other indigenous ministry workers all over the globe and then how can you as well, we're, we've said it the whole time, it's a both and, how can you also be involved in cross-cultural missions uh, in your own life? And how can you jump in feet first into both? Maybe you've been super involved in cross-cultural missions. Well, maybe you really need to get exposed and really get involved over here uh, in indigenous ministry work. Or maybe you've Maybe maybe there's a random listener who's isolated themselves from cross-cultural missions and they're super involved in indigenous ministry work. Well, you need to expose yourself to that. So that would be my encouragement to our listeners. That's good. That's, Robert, thank you again for being here today because we have enjoyed this. And uh, anything else you would like to leave our listeners with today? No, just to, just to simply say that God is at work around the world. Uh, you know, give one last statistic. Roughly 100 years ago, the vast, vast majority of believers in this world lived in what we call the West. That's either Western Europe, United States, Canada, this part of the world, the part of the world that we're familiar with. Let's say roughly 75%. The other 25% lived in what would now be known as the global South. Hmm. Today, that's flipped. Hmm. Only 25% of born-again believers now live in the West. The rest of the world, 75%, is where, where, where the evangelical believers are. And so in, wow. order, in, order to do, in order to reach the world, who are we going to have to tap? It's going to be those indigenous people. Now, sometimes people hear that statistic and they go, oh, no, isn't that so sad? We were 75 and they were 25. Now we're 25 and they're 75. No. You know what that proves? It proves cross-cultural missions worked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it worked. Right, right. Okay? Just like with the Apostle Paul. He started out cross-cultural, but then the whole movement became indigenous. It's what's happening today. Mm. Can you imagine 100 million believers in China where it's not easy to be a believer? I mean, if you're in that 100 million, okay, you're probably pretty serious. Can you imagine if China goes from being a mission field to becoming a missions force. Mm. Wow. How vastly and how broadly 
and quickly the gospel could spread. So that's where the workers are in the indigenous model, and we have an enormous opportunity to come along beside them. And I just encourage our listeners just to read about it, find out, Google it, okay? Check it out. And God, let God stir your heart to see how you can be a part. I think that's great. And we want to thank you for being here with where we land today. And we uh, on the podcast would want to direct you as you leave here today from listening to this, that you would take some time to visit Partners International's website. What is that part? Partnersintl.org. All right. And and that you would find some opportunities there that you could learn how you individually could get plugged in uh, to being involved with the indigenous church in seeing God's glory declared among the nations. We'll see you here next time. Thank you for listening to Where We Land, Christ, Culture, and the Church. Well, listen, we're so glad to have you on the podcast today. And if you have any questions about our episode today or any previous episodes, we'd love for you to reach out to us at our email at podcast at wherewelandorg You can also go to our Facebook page and find a live episode from Where We Land that we did on uh dealing with doubt. So if you have some time, uh, go on Facebook, check that out, and we'll see you here next time on the podcast. We'll see you then.